This is an ABC podcast. You're listening to The Country Hour on ABC Radio South Australia and Broken Hill. Hello, welcome to The Country Hour across South Australia and Broken Hill. I'm Cassie Huff with you today. Australians are proud of their shearing heritage and now another world record has been broken for the most lambs shorn in a day. I'll tell you what it took to break that record. So it would be nothing for Aidan to um, do a full day in the shed, a shearing, um, you know, sitting up around his 400 tallies and he would then just go out and probably put a weighted vest on and do a 20-25k run. Wow, I couldn't do that even uh, without working all day. So, uh, yeah, he's certainly a very fit man. I'll have more details on how he went about that win. Also, the fruit fly outbreaks in the Riverland cause headaches once again for parents as students return to school. I'll have more on that soon. But first up today, Russian farmers will plant their spring crops later this year under instructions from the government about how much and what type of crop they should grow. Russia's Ministry of Agriculture wants farmers to plant less wheat and more barley and legumes. Rubber Bank Agriculture Analyst Denis Vosnesensky says Russian wheat plantings will be reduced by about half a million hectares. And it's an interesting move by the government when world stocks of wheat are already low. They're looking to now tell farmers overall how much and what type of crops they're going to be growing. So, for example, overall, they're looking to increase area, but when you look inside the specific crops for wheat, they're actually trying to reduce area by around half a million hectares. And if you use last year's yields and you say, okay, what kind of impact would that theoretically have if they again have really good yields? Well, around one and a half million tons. But the challenge with ever putting these restrictions in place is that what if you move into next year and suddenly not only do you have impacted yields due to a drought, but then you have you have an artificially low level or a lower level of area because the government put it in place. So what's the the rationale behind all this? How do you interpret that? They they said this really vague thing. They want to stabilise the domestic market and pricing. Well, prices have declined a little bit compared to the highs they had previously. We're yet to see if they actually put this in place, because you have to keep in mind, they said this after the winter planting already got put in place, then Mm. they have to put the spring planting in. And theoretically, that is where this is going to start playing out. So the Russian wheat harvest depends where you look, but for their combined winter and spring wheat, I think that crops between 90 and 100 million tonnes. So they've just had a whopper. Uh, they're trying to scale that back. What's their, Have they set a target production figure or anything like that? Yeah, they definitely want to lower it from that 90 to 100, or actually a caveat first. It might mm. not even be 90 to 100 because part of that will be Ukrainian wheat and they just have to, well, Possibly they're just justifying why they have so much. They're saying that, okay, we just had a really large production level uh, domestically. So that's the first part. But they did say they want to target around 80 to 85 million tons. Uh, So we're going to have to wait and see how that happens. But look, in the past, whenever governments have tried to interfere in what farmers do in terms of planting, it it just hasn't gone well. So I think the more the Russian government starts getting involved in agriculture in Russia, the more it's going to be to the detriment of Russian production and likely to the benefit of farmers elsewhere. I just can't imagine uh, farmers in Australia being told, no, you have to plant less wheat. Wouldn't go down well. (laughs) Funnily enough, we actually had the situation was at the end of, or towards the end of World War II, we had so much Mm. grain and limited ways to get it out of the country that the government came in and they said, we are now going to limit how much grain 
you are allowed to produce and how much wheat you're allowed to produce. And the problem was they did that in the exact same year, just before planting and just before a massive drought hit. We were just about to finish the war and the world, the war-torn Europe desperately needed our wheat. But the problem was our production collapsed. And not only did it collapse, but we had to import wheat from the US that was initially destined for Europe. And that's why I'm saying, okay, look, the half a million hectares of wheat in the grand scheme of things isn't a massive deal, but it's just a sign of that they're getting, the government's getting more involved in agriculture. And typically when that happens, I, I just haven't seen good things in the past. There was a lot of conversation last year, Dennis, about the Black Sea Grain Initiative where grain was able to be shipped out of that conflict-affected area. Is grain still going out of that pathway from the Black Sea? Uh, Yes, it is. And if you look at exports since that deal was signed back in July of 2022, since then uh, to December, around 34.5 million tonnes of grains and oilseeds have been exported out of Ukraine. That compares to 41 million tonnes the year before over the same period, so around 17% less. But there is a lot leaving the country. And what we have to remember about this is that now there's been a lot of investment in Ukraine to get the grain out of the country via non-ocean ports in case the grain deal falls apart. So there's been a lot more. It's in some months, 40 to 50 percent going over land uh, with the remainder going, going over ocean. So is that grain that's coming out, is that competing with Australian grain in those Asian markets that there, there has been that long-standing sort of competition, if you like? Is that, mm. is that pushing down Australian wheat prices at the moment? Well, if you look at where the wheat has been going, around 11% has been going to Asia, Middle East and Africa, around 20%. Then you have European countries like Romania and Spain and Poland, also a very large chunk going to them. So if you look at Romania, around 18%, Spain, 15%. So it does, of course, impact our pri- the pricing in our region. The more grain that comes here, of course, the, the lower the price is. Um, still, I mean, compared to historic levels, if we go before COVID and before the war in Ukraine started, our prices domestically are doing uh, very well at the moment. I did read with interest the US Department of Ag reported 1.28 billion bushels of US wheat on hand. That was at the 1st of December. So that's a really low level for the US, I think the lowest in hmm. 15 years. So globally, despite that, that massive Russian crop that we just mentioned, but globally, would you still say that the stocks of wheat are low? Yes. Uh, if you if you look at global stocks, they've been continuously declining bit by bit, bit by bit over the last couple of years, uh, actually more than by a bit last year. And that's why we saw uh, a large, a rather large spike in prices and it was supportive for some time. For Australia, though, the, the challenge is that we have such a large crop on hand. We have to figure out how to get it all out of the country. Mm. Um, and that tends to suppress pricing. The, the one thing I would add, though, is that the Brazilian corn crop's looking good. And when that corn crop's looking good, it means that the it, it can supply the feed complex, and when there's more corn, corn around, maybe there's a little bit less wheat uh, needed. So uh, it, it all plays in together. And what about China? That's the other big influencer of global grain prices. What sort of demand for grain are you seeing there? Well, that's an interesting one. Even though they're not buying our barley, they are buying a lot of our sorghum and wheat. And if you look at what's their, like why this could be happening, one of the factors, well, there's going to be two here. The first one is that Chinese domestic corn production is expected down five to six million tons. That's a fair bit. And you add to that that previously they've been importing you know, 20, 30 million tons of corn from overseas to a large part from Ukraine and uh, Ukraine, pardon me, and the US. And now with all the uncertainty around Ukraine, I think they're they're being even more cautious than usual and buying up feed grains from the likes of Australia. So if you look at all that and you think, well, there's no 
more grain coming into the market, the world market, until what, June, July, there still could be a fair bit of volatility in pricing. Is that right? It's going to be a twofold answer. Yes, if you can get the grain easily out of the country. So the grain, once it's on the water, that competes for internationally and it competes with the same price you see, for example, in the Chicago Board of Trade that jumps around whenever something happens globally, if there's a war or whatever else. But the domestic prices, they get they get a cap put on them because there's just so much willing to be sold. We have this massive crop, whether you look at the West or East Coast, that there's a cap there that acts as this kind of cushion or buffer against global movements. Uh, so that's the challenge there. Rubber Bank Agriculture Analyst Dennis Vosnesensky speaking with Joe Prendergast to grain a little closer to home and uh, construction companies have been invited to bid for the major repair works of the Pine Creek Bridge northeast of Laura. A 30-tonne weight limit was placed on the bridge in 2019, which forced trucks to take an alternative unsealed row, adding more time and cost to the journey. Laura Transport business owner Andrew Keller says the bridge's conditions has, condition has been a community concern for quite some time. What I find, Dimitri, is it's disrupted our, our freight movements, especially during harvest, because we've got to use a heavy vehicle bypass road because the existing Pine Creek Bridge is only 30 tonne rated. So we end up having to divert onto a dirt road, which is at best mediocre. So it disrupts the, the freight movements during harvest, but even after harvest as well with fertiliser, livestock, any other commodities that uh, need to be moved after harvest off farm. I can hear there there's lots of important freight going through. How crucial is this bridge in terms of transportation of rural cargo? Well, I I rate it very uh, high up on the list as far as being vital because virtually the majority of the freight that comes out of Bullaroo, Oru, all that catchment area that has to either take freight south or you bring freight north from, say, Gladstone Law or even Adelaide, needs to cross that Pine Creek Bridge. Otherwise, you've got to find alternate routes up along the ranges through Warabra and, and Murraytown, which isn't always logistically well, you know, viable for people. So it, it is a fairly important link. Yeah, and what is that detour time exactly and the kilometres the uh, unsealed road adds to the journey? Look, it's not big. It's probably a, another five minutes extra on your trip, which most people would say that's pretty minimal. But in most cases, you're probably adding around about another four to five k's onto your trip. Now, that doesn't sound very much either, but at harvest time where we, we our rates are dictated by 10k increments, sometimes that puts that freight distance for the movement of that grain up into that next freight increment, which increases the prices to the grower. And has this been an issue that the community and other road users have spoken up about for quite some time? Yeah, it has. Um, This has been ongoing for three years. And look, I've got no doubt the council have had to do feasibility studies on it and costings, but there's been a lot of talk within the community and some members of the community aren't very happy at all that this is probably because it's this Pine Creek Bridge over the Pine Creek is is right at the edge of the Northern Areas Council area that quite literally, oh, it doesn't affect the majority of the ratepayers, so we're not too concerned. But for people in the Oru and Mount Remarkable Council areas, it's, uh, it's affecting those people big time. Generally, how does the bridge function for other vehicles? For other vehicles, it's a narrow bridge. 
Um, to put two cars across it isn't all that safe as far as width-wise. So in most cases, you'll you'll see a car give way to another car. So as soon as you start to put heavy vehicles on there, definitely, you know, one vehicle will always give way to the other because it's it's just not practical to even pass two vehicles on that bridge. So there's a there's a reasonable safety hazard there alone. And for local people, okay, we're, we're fully aware of it and we know that it's a narrow bridge, but for anybody that's unfamiliar with the area and driving through, it's probably a pretty scary trap for them if they thought they were going to cross the bridge and another vehicle's coming the other way and realised at the last minute, well, hang on, there isn't exactly that much room. And uh, because it's affected so many people in the rural community and, and it's just not the people off of farms, it's people in the, the local towns being able to use that bridge as well. So, it, uh, yeah, it's a, you know, people were sort of quite concerned about it and probably the time frame that it's taking to get this bridge repaired and um, refurbished, that's probably been a big concern. That was Laura Transport business owner Andrew Keller speaking with Dimitri Panagiotaris. It's 18 minutes past 12. Afternoons with Sonia Feldhoff. Gabrielle on the text line says, we went to Balgowan Beach camping. It all went pear-shaped when heaps of four-wheel drives came roaring onto the beach, ripping up the beach, partying. Lee at Richmond, no cars should be allowed on any beaches. This text says, the percentage of beaches in Australia where vehicular access is permissible is minuscule. This is a storm in a teacup. If they ban beach driving, business in townships such as Goolwa will really suffer. Sonia Feldhoff on ABC Radio South Australia and Broken Hill. You're listening to Cassie Huff on ABC Radio South Australia and Broken Hill. Weather's up next, but in the meantime, a shearer from South Australia is recovering today after beating a world record in shearing at the weekend in Tasmania. 37-year-old Aidan Kopp managed to shear 605 lambs in eight hours on the property Lovely Banks in Tasmania's southern highlands, beating the previous world record of 527 lambs. He didn't just beat it, he blitzed it. Uh, Reporter Will Murray was on hand to watch the action and spoke to Aidan's trainer, Lucy Byers. Yes, I helped him along um, being personal trainer and also then managing, so managing to the event and managing on the day. And can you tell me, uh, we're a few hours in, how's he tracking? Yeah, he's right on. He's, um, he is um, exceeding probably expectations, um, but he, his lead up was um, epic. He, yeah, he had a very yeah, motivated and very um, driven mindset, so he, he's not faltering. He's amazing. And can you tell me a little bit about that lead-up? These people are incredibly fit that take on these uh, these world record attempts. Absolutely. Um, so it'd be nothing for Aidan to um, do a full day in the shed, a shearing, um, you know, sitting up around his 400 tallies, and he would then just go out and probably put a weighted vest on and do a 20, 25k run. So, um, or swimming or, you know, bike riding. He was, um, or just going for the gym. He's phenomenal, but probably more so I think his mental strength is just above and beyond. Like to be able to do any of that, you've just got to have major mental strength. So they train, effectively they train like professional athletes. Oh, an elite athlete. Um, To to take on a world record like this, um, shearers in their own right um, are athletes. But then taking it onto that world, uh, you know, world record status is is an elite athlete. And can you tell us what's the breakdown like? We've got four runs that he has to go through. Yep. What kind of pace is he having to keep to get near that world record? So yeah, he's he's sitting on between that forty-five, you know, sort of second rate. Um, he's he's just 
yeah, and, he, and he's not faltering. He, he's, he's amazing, um, you know. And he's got to, and in knowing in that, he's got to change his own gear. He's got to, he's got to be on all that himself. So he's, he's just ticking over. He's really holding it well. And you, you mentioned it's about that forty-five second per sheep, sh- uh, sh- Sean. Sean. Yep. What's it normally? You know, if that's 45 seconds for world record pace, what are you normally sitting on? You know, it can vary. It, it, it really does depend on the animal, but you could be sitting, you know, a, your shearer would be, be sitting at a minute, a little bit, a little bit over a minute um, per sheep. And, you know, but the thing is, we, what we, we look at is they can have one run where they'll really, they'll really push out and they'll exceed expectations. Um, and then they'll probably just back off. But when you're doing a world record, you've got to try and maintain it for the whole day. So um, it's more endurance and holding that high speed at, at endurance for the day, which is where it's at. And we're talking an eight-hour day. So what kind of toll is that taking on uh, Aiden's body? Oh, yeah. So it can take a real toll. Um, you know, you've got to be looking at that muscle fatigue, that lactic acid build-up. Um, making sure that we're getting that hydration in there and keeping everything really, really hydrated um, because it can. It can have a real massive toll on that body. But um, that's where that lead-up is so important, um, getting it right. And, he, and he's, he's got it right. I'm Darren Ford, and my role is to, on the times to keep them motivated and give them the time, split time. So what I've done is set them at 48 seconds, and I yell that out every time. It comes to 48 seconds, so he's got to try and keep in front of it. So that's how he knows how he's going. And then at the end, we assess how many he's done, which would come to 150 or 153, you know. And we push him the last little bit to try and get the catch, get the hand on the door to get the catch. Um, that's my role, is just to keep him motivated and know where he is, what, how many he's sharing and stuff. So. And I've just heard that you are yourself a former uh, Shearing World Record holder. Yes, I, didn't, I held um, three records over my times and I still got um, part of a record with a team record, 16 record back in New Zealand. So, um, yeah, I've been through all that before and it's not easy. It's unbelievably hard. Um, your body's, you're working so much harder than what you normally do on a normal day. Um, so yeah, it, it is bloody hard. But in saying that, he's trained and prepared for it. So he knows, and he's done one before, so he knows what he's going through. So. Can you give us an indication of the toll it takes on your body to shear a sheep every 45, 48 seconds for an eight-hour day? Well, I'll just go back to one of mine years ago. I lost about six kilos on the day from when I started the day to the end of the day. So um, I started at 81 kilos. I ended up on 75 point something. So... That's how much it drains you, um, and because you're sharing so many, and your body's not used to sharing that many as well. So it's, it's, it's so hard. But hopefully, he's feeling it now at lunchtime. But um, you know, that good lunch break and come that last ten minutes, he'll lift again. I reckon before the start of the next run. And how did the shearer Aiden Cop feel after breaking the record? Oh, it was a good day out. About due a rest. Uh, yeah. I knew I'd have a good result. I've done the training. Uh, uh, sort of, I didn't think I'd do that many, but uh, not too bad now. But yeah, I was in a, in a bit of uh, pain here and there. But just tried to stay stay positive, even though I was in a bit of pain here and there. But uh, I always believed in myself. Young people need to see down here that uh, any, anything's possible in the shearing industry. And um, yeah, some good sheep down here. So yeah, have a go.
New world record holder Aidan Kopp from New South Wales speaking after sharing 605 lambs in eight hours in Tasmania at the weekend. We also heard from previous record holder Darren Ford and Aidan's trainer Lucy Byers. That report was by Will Murray. We'll head across to the Bureau of Meteorology now where I'm joined by Senior Forecaster Jenny Horvat. Good afternoon. Good afternoon, Cassie. So it's uh, relatively mild at the moment and perhaps going to even cool off more this week. What's going on? Yeah, that's right. A little bit different this week. So we've got a couple of fronts coming across from the south and we're going to pull up some cooler air from the south, which we haven't really been seeing when we've had our systems coming through. We've usually been picking up those troughs that move across from the west and picking up some of that tropical infeed. But this week we're going to be seeing those couple of fronts. They're not not too the one on Wednesday is not too not too strong but the one on Thursday a little bit little bit stronger picking up a little bit of that cooler air and just cooling things down and temperatures getting to sort of 10 or 12 degrees below average by the end of the week so a little bit unusual for those temperatures to be that low um, for February but we did have one of those tropical um, intrusions move through over the weekend and I was just having a bit of a look at some of the rainfall it was a little bit of a mixed bag um, over the over the weekend and starting last late last week um, out in the west there, um, but we've seen some falls up around the the thirty millimeter mark with this um, event out in the northwest there, Lake Everard picking up around thirty six millimeters and Todd Morden thirty two for the northeast pastoral district. We are still going to be seeing some of that weather around with that troughs contracted up there today, but we've seen about thirty millimeters at Yunta, thirty five millimeters out at um, Nullarbor across the mid north, maybe not so much. Rockley picking up around 15 millimetres. We saw about 35 millimetres at Hawker. The southeast also didn't pick up quite as much. It was a bit varied. Road picking up around 10 millimetres and only a couple of millimetres at Keith. So it was a little bit hit and miss with that rain band, but um, for a lot of the state, we did see some significant falls as that moved through. But as I've mentioned, we've got that trough still lingering up in the northeast of the state. So still the chance to see some shower and possibly some thunderstorm activity about the northeast to the north east pastoral district and we will be watching for those storms further we see some periods of heavier rainfall up in that northeast corner today as well and they could be gusty as well those thunderstorms um, today up in the up in the north but remaining dry in the south for today we've still got quite a bit of cloud over sort of central parts is starting to clear out from the southeast and the far west of the state but um should still see a little bit of sun maybe trying to poke through most places by the end of today except for up in that far northeast where it's pretty pretty solid with that trough continuing dry conditions for the south of the state and that sort of fresh southeasterly airstream. We've got another one of these high pressure systems sitting in the bite. It's still going to be remaining quite cloudy up in the in the northeast and we couldn't rule out a little bit of shower activity there on the Tuesday as well but we are looking at relatively dry conditions elsewhere again in the south. Tuesday morning could be a little bit foggy for some of our western districts. Then on Wednesday we'll see the first of our fronts clipping the south of the state. This is a weakening system but nevertheless we could be seeing a little bit of shower activity around the um, the agricultural area mostly the southern agricultural there with most of the the showers really being confined to the southern coasts and ranges. We've got our second front that will move through and looks today um, later in the day on the Thursday and again showers pushing up across the agricultural area and potentially into the northern agricultural area um, that will leave us in that cooler southerly airstream so those cooler temperatures on Thursday and Friday drying up for the weekend and warming up for the weekend 
looking at some of the rainfall that we are expecting this week up until the end of Friday. So broadly across the agricultural area with those fronts, we are looking at around 2 to 10 millimetres. We're also looking at about 2 to 10 millimetres across the northeast pastoral district today and tomorrow. But with... Um, with some of those thunderstorms today in that far northeast, we could see some falls of 10 to 40 millimetres, but they will clear off relatively quickly tomorrow. And then with those fronts across our southern coasts and ranges, we also could see a little bit more rainfall there, maybe around that 5 to 15, Mark Cassie. Thanks so much for that. Jenny Horvath there with the latest from the Bureau of Meteorology. In the far west of New South Wales, it'll be partly cloudy in the upper western tomorrow. Medium chance of showers in the far east, most likely in the morning and early afternoon. Not much rain anywhere else, but there could be a thunderstorm in the east. Overnight, it will get down to 19 to 23 degrees, but the day will reach the low to mid-30s. The lower western will be mostly sunny. There's a slight chance of a shower in the far east in the morning and afternoon. Again, a chance of a thunderstorm in the far east in the morning and afternoon. Overnight, the temperatures will fall to between 16 and 19, but the daytime temperatures should reach the low 30s. More to come on the Country Hour as we approach 12.30. You're listening to the Country Hour. For more stories from across the country, go to abc.net.au slash rural. On ABC Radio Adelaide, South Australia and Broken Hill, this is Cassie Huff. Cassie Huff. Hello, it's so great you could join me this week, or at least today, uh, for the country. I'm Cassie Huff. It's been a big week for many of you across the state with children returning or starting school for the first time, and that means school lunchbox packing. But once again, parents in the Riverland are limited in the fruit they can send with their children, given there are now, I think, about 24, 25 uh, fruit flight detections in the Riverland. My kids, you know, they're growing boys, and so they need their lunchbox absolutely packed, absolutely jam-packed. And so I have these huge bags of fruit that I usually send in, but we won't be doing that this year. What a shame. I know many of you know what it's like. So what have you done to make sure your home produce doesn't go to waste when you are stuck in one of these fruit fly restriction zones? You can call me on 1300 222 891 or you can text 0467 922891. I'd love to hear some of your suggestions. Uh, you'll hear some from the, the people we speak to as well. But perhaps maybe even if you don't have a dehydrator and things like that, what other things did you do to make sure that your produce didn't didn't go to waste. Like I said, text 0467 922 or phone 1300 Also, while the debate around cannabis legalisation continues, uh, farmers producing hemp in South Australia are working hard to find outlets for the products that they produce. I'll have more on that soon. But first, here's Matt Coleman with the latest in news. Hello, Cassie. In the news this afternoon, the federal government says it will mandate a minimum payment for contracted artists at government events as part of its wider boost to the art sector. The government has launched its Revive program today with $286 million to be invested across the arts, entertainment and culture sector over five years. The Adelaide Holocaust Museum is urging the Immigration Minister to block Kanye West's entry into Australia after the US rapper made comments described as anti-Semitic. Museum board member Sean Hill says Kanye West's commentary is vilifying to the Jewish community. And as the Riverland floodwaters recede, contractors have begun removing the temporary inlet closure to Barmra's Lake Bonnie. The state coordinator has issued a direction prohibiting people from being on or in the River Murray within 500 metres of the Morgan Road Bridge often referred to as Napa's Bridge. The temporary closure has been in place since the start of December last year to protect critical infrastructure. 
More news at one o'clock. Thanks for that, Matt. Now, as I was saying, fruit fly restrictions in the Riverland will see more children than ever return to school without homegrown fruit in their lunchbox. With 25 outbreaks across the region, families are trying to find affordable and healthy alternatives. Loxton mum, Sonia Fitzness, who has a permaculture property, is in the latest outbreak area and she says it's frustrating that the pest is still causing problems. We have so much fruit at the moment because it's summertime, so we have so much starting to ripen up and it's, and it's delicious. But however, we can't take it off the property now, so we will be eating it straight off the tree and we'll be processing it, like making fruit wraps or putting it in the dehydrator and giving certainly the bird peck fruit to the chickens. So, Would you normally be packing some of that fruit for your children to take to school? Oh, absolutely. My kids, you know, they're growing boys and so they need their lunchbox absolutely packed, absolutely jam-packed. And so I have these huge bags of fruit that I usually send in, but we won't be doing that this year, so. How much extra work might that make for you as a mother and a a single mother, organising healthy snacks for your kids, you know, not just being able to pop a nectarine in from your tree? it does make things a bit harder. So economically, uh, fruit and veg, you know, with a fruit fly as well as the, the rising prices of fruit and veg, it's costing a fortune at the moment to be um, buying all this stuff when it's sitting there at home. Time-wise, uh, I now have to create things like, oh, you know, doing the fruit straps in the dehydrator or cutting them up and, like, dehydrating them as a little, you know, so... If it's a peach, be a little half circle. It's really time consuming. Mm. <laughs> yeah, or putting it through the preserver, so yeah. And that's not even to mention the time to take that ripe fruit off the trees that you have to do yeah. now. If you have a lot of fruit trees, that sounds like we do. a lot of work. We do. Oh, I enjoy it though. It's really beautiful to go outside and just picking it straight off the tree and just eating it when it's still warm. But yeah, there's so much work here to be done you know it just adds to it so is that something you're able to get your kids to help you with to collect the fruit off the trees sometimes sometimes Um, i think more goes in their mouths than actually that's actually bought inside but it's probably good at this i mean that's the whole point why we did fruit trees here anyway is so they could just walk outside and just pick it straight off the tree so and I, i think in that sense i'm you know i'm quite blessed that i can that i've got that opportunity but I can imagine someone who hasn't got access to homegrown fruit and veggies, it would be difficult. It would be hard. Yeah. Have you heard from any other parents of children in outbreak areas about how they're going with, with fruit fly and, and managing you know, fruit restrictions and packing school lunches? Uh, I haven't really spoken about it with anyone, but they're certainly uh, they're annoyed that it's happening, that it's still happening. This has been a few years now. I'm in the area that originally had the first fruit fly outbreak and that was just it was such a shock then but I think people who have this is like what second time round getting used to it but for someone who hasn't been in a fruit fly zone yet it's it's infuriating. Loxton mum Sonia Fitzner.
Primary Industries of South Australia's Nick Seckham says with all of the recent outbreaks found in backyard fruit trees, residents need to make sure ripe fruit isn't left on the ground or the tree to rot. So it's really important that people understand that with homegrown fruit, that is really high risk for fruit fly because it's obviously not treated. If fruit fly around, they love homegrown fruit. So we ask people not to move it from their property at all. You can enjoy it at home. Obviously, if you'd like to enjoy that away from home, you can process it, you can cook it, you can freeze it. But please don't move homegrown fruit away from your property because that's how fruit fly spreads and we've seen that happen a couple of times. So enjoy your homegrown fruit at home but please don't take it to work, don't take it to school in a school lunchbox, don't take it to sport. If you want to take those sorts of things to school or work or, or, or other places, please buy retail fruit, keep that receipt, we know that's fruit fly safe. Mr Seckham says despite the new outbreaks, increasing reports of potential fruit fly sightings show the community is engaged in the fight to eradicate the pest. Of the most recent fruit fly outbreaks, all of them have been reported by people who have checked their backyard fruit, which is great. And that's what we want people to do. We want people to check their backyard fruit and ring our hotline on 1300 666 010 if they see anything that looks like fruit fly. Persa Fruit Fly Response General Manager Nick Seckham. Adelaide dietitian Dr Shabnam Kashif says children will get plenty of nutritional benefits even if the fruit isn't fresh. Generally, when we think about fruit, we would be happy, especially for children as well, um, as dietitians, we'd be happy for children to eat fruit um, in any form that would encourage them to eat fruit because eating fruit, whether it's pureed, fresh, dried, frozen, is going to be better than eating no fruit, of course. Generally, when we apply heat to fruit, so thinking of things like stewed fruit, pureed fruit, canned fruit, the canning process can introduce heat, that might affect some of those more heat-sensitive nutrients like vitamin C. That's just one example, and that's one that gets talked about a lot. But generally, the impact is quite minimal. And when you look at it overall, we're not too worried, and we don't really differentiate between fresh versus, say, um, canned. The other... I guess format you can get fruit in is frozen and generally frozen is quite similar to the fresh sometimes even better because it's frozen and at the time that the fruit is at its ripest and generally more nutrient dense so then it doesn't have time to sit on the shelves or in our fridges or in our shopping bags or in our lunch boxes to kind of wait for those nutrients to deplete but as I mentioned overall that difference in the nutrient content is not really going to make a significant difference and really the priority is eating the fruit and not worrying about the format of the fruit. Adelaide dietitian Dr. Shabnam Kashif ending that story by Eliza Berlage. I'm interested in how you would tackle this issue, particularly with that fancy technology, because it, it does sound amazing to have a dehydrator or be able to make fruit straps and things like that. But a lot of people don't have that technology at home. But uh, a text in uh, says, with the fruit glut, stew large amounts and freeze in portion sizes. I know my grandparents did that. I always think about um, stewed fruit on breakfast cereal. <laughs> That's just what I grew up with eating because my grandmother used to do that a lot. If you've got any other suggestions, text me on zero four six seven nine double two eight nine one or phone one three hundred triple two eight nine one. To a crop of a different sort now and hemp crops in South Australia are still reasonably new, but signs are they may have some staying power within the state. SARDI, which is the South Australian Research and Development Institute, has been working with AgriFutures Australia to undertake national research to improve production. Research scientist for Saudi Mark Skews says the results at the sites in the southeast and Riverland have been positive. The trials are 
particularly focused on grain production, so the production of hemp seed for human consumption and uh, other uses. And we're basically looking at comparing a range of different varieties across those all those different trial sites and also looking at the most appropriate time to sow for those all those different varieties in the different locations. So, for example, there are some sites up in uh, northern Western Australia and the Northern Territory which actually plant out of season with the rest of the country because that suits uh, better up that, that way. Um, and then down here we're planting um, generally October, November, December timing. And, uh, yeah, with those trials at the moment, I guess what are some of the results that you're seeing at the moment? We're seeing pretty good results. Um, the yields we're getting in our trials are encouraging and certainly matching some of the, the better yields that commercial growers are getting. We're seeing some differences in the different sites with the varieties that, that you know, suit those, those sites. Even just between uh, the Riverland and the southeast, you know, it, it's obvious that the, the climate is, is not that different but a, but a bit different between the two um, and we are getting differences in which varieties are the best at those two different sites. And obviously when you start spreading between Tasmania and the Northern Territory, uh, those differences become even greater and it's quite different varieties that are doing better in in the different locations. And have you had much interest from growers um, in, in the trials and in growing hemp? There has been quite a bit of interest. So we had a field day here last week and we had about 25 people attend here at Loxton Research Centre. So that was was a good day and lots of interest and and some good discussion around some of the issues. Uh, Not just, uh, we don't just talk about the trials and and the varieties and and sowing times, we talk about the other issues with growing hemp, with weed control and managing the sowing, how how you best should sow hemp to, to get a good establishment, what to do about various insect pests that come along along the way. So, uh, yeah, we had a good discussion about uh, all those sorts of issues. There are quite a few licensed growers within South Australia. I don't know the, the exact number because I'm not in the licensing side of things, but uh, there, are, there are quite a few licensees and some of them are currently growing crops this year and have been for you know, the last three or four years. For those licensed growers that you're aware of and, and you spoke about the, the trials as well, yeah, how has hemp been growing uh, amongst the, those um, multiple La Nina weather patterns? Uh, it's actually been doing quite well. It's grown as a, an irrigated crop in the summer here and so, I mean, we're not relying on rainfall. We're, we're supplementing that with with a lot of irrigation and so um, it actually grows really well and there's been some very successful growers particularly down in the southeast uh, where it fits into their um, rotational cropping systems under centre pivots down there and they've had some really impressive yields both of grain crops and then this year they're actually um, moving into the the fibre and biomass production crops instead. So they're just fitting that into the rotation with their other crops um, and actually you know, finding it really quite, uh, quite a good crop to grow because it, it's different and, and uh, helps to give the ground a break for some of those crops. Uh, and also it's actually been quite um, profitable to them too, I believe. Yeah, that's interesting uh, thinking about how profitable hemp is because I've heard that it's quite hard sometimes to find those end uses for hemp. The demand side hasn't quite been there. Is that starting to change? So in the early years here in South Australia, and we're only talking, you know, I think most people grew their first crop in about 2018, 
So in those first few years, there was reasonable profit in producing hemp seed or the grain production, but that market hasn't developed as quickly as, as had been hoped. And so at the moment, we're seeing a shift in growers moving to growing for fibre and herd, which is the, the other component of the stem, the component that's more often used in building materials. And there seems to be an increasing demand for, for that product. Um, and also an increasing availability of the machinery and equipment needed to process and extract that product. So that's some of the latest on the growing side of things from research scientist Mark Skews speaking with Eliza Berlage. But could industrial hemp growing in South Australia be turned into a product called hempcrete? It is uh, hoped that, that perhaps this product could be used more in new builds across the state. Hempcrete is used in different ways to traditional concrete. It has a lower carbon footprint than some other building materials. Head of Food Science Department at the University of Adelaide, Professor Rachel Burton, says there are many steps when it comes to producing hempcrete. So hemp, uh, as it's grown in the field, it's a, a long, tall plant, and we mostly take the stem of the hemp plant and if you dry it and then you um, separate it in a machine, you get some fractions out of that hemp plant and you get some fibres, long fibres, which we can use to make things like textiles. And the inside of the stem um, has got shorter fibres which come out of the machine um, in shorter pieces and it's called herd. And we can mix that herd with some wet components and make hempcrete. It's like a sort of slurry, it's a sticky slurry, and you can um, press that into form board and it will sit there and dry and go hard and that's your hempcrete. And so what is hempcrete used for? It's a building material. So it's very, it's a lovely building material actually because it's um, obviously it comes from plants, so it's carbon uh, neutral and it's got quite um, unusual properties because it's quite breathable, so it's a ni- nice atmosphere in the house. It's also fire retardant. So it doesn't catch fire, which, you know, we should be thinking about for Australian um, places that are fire prone. It's got really good insulation properties and noise insulation properties. So it's, it's a very good building material and, you know, reasonably cheap and carbon neutral. Have many homes in Australia been built using hempcrete or are there many in, in production that are using this material? There haven't been very many yet, um, but it's certainly getting much more popular. Um, there's been sort of homes built in places like Tasmania and there are a few in Mount Barker in South Australia. Um, but it's catching on as a, as a building material because people are becoming more aware of its properties. And it's certainly been used overseas a lot and there are some very notable building product projects that have gone ahead. One of the big Marks and Spencers shopping centres in the, in the UK is also built out of hemp and they've been monitoring the um, energy efficiency of the building and it's coming out much better than they even predicted so they're very happy with it. So there's, there's good examples around the world but um, uh, I think it's, it's starting to catch on. And so you spoke about the energy efficiency of hempcrete and some of the, the breathability. What's the cost of production like to make hempcrete? So that's a bit of a tricky question to answer at the moment because it depends on the inputs that the farmer has to put in to grow the crop. It's a summer crop, so it needs irrigation. So uh, the cost of your water and your fertiliser, and obviously you've got embedded capital in the land, and then you have to harvest and process. So the costs at the moment are not clear, and it will probably depend on the area where you live, how far you have to take the hemp to be processed, whether you have to move it around in a truck for a long way because that's additional cost. So I think as we get more familiar with 
building with it, with growing it and processing it, the cost will start to, you know, work out. I think the rough um, rule of thumb is that you need you need to grow about a hectare to build a house. And as you mentioned, once it's come off the farm, it then needs to be processed into that material. Are there many Australian companies or is there much happening around actually processing and creating hempcrete or is that an industry that would need to grow for it to be used more widely? I, I think that's exactly right, that there's actually been a blockage, a bit of a, a bottleneck in facilities that are available to process the hemp once it's grown. And growers aren't keen to grow anything if, if they don't have that facility to be able to process things. So it has to go through a machine um, called a decorticator, which is basically a quite robust hammer mill, which beats the fibres uh, or the stems into, into the fibre components. Being able to get access to one of those is quite important. It's a, it's a key facility that you need to be then able to produce the hemp uh, herds and the fibres. One one of the good things that's happened in South Australia recently is there's a company called Vicura who are investing in providing a decorticator and they've uh, contracted a hemp crop down in the southeast and that will be used to go through the decorticator and produce product. Professor Rachel Burton from the University of Adelaide speaking with Eliza Berlage there about uh, some of the uses for hemp. It's been a trivial crop to find uh, a lot of end uses for, even though there is quite a lot of interest in growing it in this state. But uh, sounds like hempcrete might be something that is developing for those growers. Uh, more to come on the program. I've got a text in suggesting that uh, when it comes to the, the fruit glut, that you could try to make jam with some of the produce. Even fruits like nectarines can make lovely jam, according to this text, you can use peaches and nectarines interchangeably with almost any peach jam recipe. There you go. I love nectarines, but I have never actually had nectarine jam. So if you have, let me know what it tastes like. Is it good? Because uh, I, I really haven't met a nectarine I don't like. So uh, I'd be interested to try it. It is coming up to 10 to 1. Q&A is returning to Monday nights. It's the show that gives you a voice challenges you and leaves you surprised. You'll hear things you agree with. Can't they see we deserve some justice? Some things you don't. If you back us into a corner, we're going to come out fighting. But you're going to hear the truth and someone has to answer. Join Stan Grant for Q&A. The answers are here. Returning to Monday nights on ABC TV and streaming on ABC iView. On digital and on mobile. ABC South Australia and Broken Hill. Can you imagine lugging giant 30 kilogram ribbons of washed up kelp off a remote beach? probably smell to high heaven as well, but it's something one Northwest Tasmanian family has been doing for a couple of decades. Marawar's Carlton Harris is only in his 20s, but he now helps run the unique seaweed business started by his father and grandfather. It may sound like rain, but that's actually the sound of 15 to 30 kilogram streamers of seaweed flapping in the wild winds off the far northwest coast of Tasmania. So this is an electronic um, racking system that we've recently put up in the last couple of months, actually. So, this is Carlton um, Harris. His family have farmed at Marawar in the northwest for generations. Once upon a time, they were dairy farmers. But about 20 years ago, their business took a turn. My grandfather and my father, Stafford, well, they were dairy farmers. Um, and they used to put their, their dairy cattle down on the beach. And they used to always go for the bull kelp. Um, so they got, ate the bull kelp. They ate the bull kelp. Right. Um, so they'd always 
be attracted to that. And that got my grandfather and, and dad thinking, why is that? Um, and that's how it all started. So that was about 25 years ago. Um, and the business has developed over that time. Obviously, um, I was a very young person, a young kid then, um, but I've grown up around it. And that's why, where the passion comes from, I guess, to see it continue and, and thrive. And, and certainly the kelp industry abroad is a huge industry and an ever-growing industry. So essentially, we go down most mornings to Tema, um, which again is on the northwest coast. Um, and we've got an ATV and a kelp trailer that we go down um, and the kelp's usually laying on the beach or a little bit in the water, it's starting to wash in. Um, and essentially a bull kelp plant has two parts of the plant. So you've got the stipe and the ribbon. Um, so what you see hanging at the moment is just the ribbon part. So we actually cut the stipe off and leave it on the beach. The stipe is what we use for our liquid product and the ribbon is for the dried. So um, essentially we pick the plant up, they can weigh anywhere between sort of that 15 and 30 kilos each. So they're not light. Um, um, and we, we've sort of got a yeah, kelp trailer that we can um, pull it onto um, and so then we bring it back to the truck which is sitting on the road. We then put it onto there and then bring it back to our plant where we are at the moment and hang it. Hefty work. Yeah, it is. It certainly keeps you fit, which is, um, yeah, and it keeps you on your toes. Obviously, we're dealing with Mother Nature and that's never the same. So on the beach, the beach can be soft one day and hard the next and, um, you know, the surging and you just got to know what you're doing down there. But, yeah, it's certainly pulling the plants up um, with some of them weighing between that 30 and 40 um, kilograms. You certainly know about it, uh, but we like to think we're kelp fit and we've done enough of it to, um, yeah, keep us going. So. Kelp fit, that's a new <laughs> metric. I haven't heard that one before. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> um, you were recently awarded a seafood processors grant. How much was it and what are your plans? Yeah, so our plans, well, we're looking at it right now. So this electric racking system um, is what, what that seafood processing grant has gone to so we're very very fortunate yeah to be successful in being awarded that um, and that is going to be a game changer for our business it just enhances um, us being able to supply the demand at the end of the day um, and you know allows us to employ more people um, and the output's a lot higher. The, the state government, um, it's, it's pretty well 60-40% dollar-to-dollar um, uh, dollar ratio. What were you doing before? Well, we had this, this old racking system here right. um, that we would manually, we'd take it off the um, truck with a forklift, lift it up, we'd back the forklift around, Put it, hang it right along here. And for our radio uh, listeners, it just looks like a pipe. Yeah, pretty well. <laughs> it's it's homemade, put yeah. it that way. So obviously safe, but homemade. Um, and so the hooks were just manual. We'd push them right around to the chipper. Um, and it was very labour intensive. So now with this racking system, with all the, our employees, we can just focus on actually collecting down the beach and bringing it back and drying it instead of spending you know hours manually having to bring the kelp around. So it right. has made us a lot more efficient. Although losing a bit of fitness, perhaps. Yeah, well, that's exactly <laughs> right. Might not be as kelp fit as what we have been. <laughs> it must be a fairly unique kind of business it's it's not a common plant bull kelp is it no it's not it only washes up in 
very few parts of the world really um, so we're very fortunate in that sense that um, right along the northwest coast here obviously King Island is is a hot spot for bull kelp and then you know the south South Africa that country they see a lot of it as well and a bit around Bruni Island that but yeah, it is a very rare kelp when you look around where it washes up. And so are there many people who are doing what you do here? Well, there's only two of us on the northwest coast of Tassie um, or around this area that actually do it. Um, it's very unique and we're very fortunate to have the collection and processing licences. Um, but obviously King Island is another big processing um, plant over there. So what, what is the kelp used for? So numerous, um, it has numerous benefits in different different sort of industries but um, our our biggest is obviously the fertiliser side so um, you know our liquid we're selling um, Tasmania and, and it, on the mainland as well um, so that's from broad acreage um, also animal health um, we sell the dried meal product and we make an increased product as well. So Tasmanian seaweed fertilisers brand homegrown right here in Marawa but that goes all around the world is that right? Yeah that's right so um, and like I said previously it, the demand is growing particularly in other countries so um, we've got some major export markets um, both in China and India at the moment um, but that continues to grow and we continue to get inquiries so which is exciting because we've, for the you know, previous 10 years we've probably mainly been you know we're well known in Tasmania and also on the mainland um, but to be able to export to other countries as well I think that's another exciting thing to have a sustainable product helping the world. Yeah it is busy um, it's never ending but that's what makes it fun and, and rewarding at the same time I get to spend you know I get to work with my dad every day which I couldn't really think of anything better to do no. um, and I think that's what makes it really rewarding and that's what keeps you going so. Oh, that's lovely. Mara was Carlton Harris showing Meg Powell how his family have created a unique business out of the kelp that washes up on nearby beaches. Fascinating business there. couple of texts in. It looks like people love nectarines as much as I do. Marion from Ironbank says that she loves nectarine jam. Nice with ginger too. Oh, I think that does sound very good. Stewed nectarines are delicious even though the brown colour is not attractive. Yeah, that's true. And there's a suggestion here. Try nectarine gratin with a little egg cream oil. Or milk. Lovely. Love those suggestions. Thanks for that. And another text saying, nectarines are wonderful for stopping Parkinson's disease. Now, I saw that text come in and thought, that is fascinating. And it turns out that there has been some research done on this and that uh, in the Queen's University of Belfast, they have found that flavonoids are compounds found in many fruits and vegetables, so not just nectarines, and they have had some um, benefits to people with Parkinson's. So there you go, another great reason to eat your nectarines. That's it from me. I think I've got another nectarine lover here with me. I'm envious because our nectarine tree did not sport one bit of fruit this no. year. Not one I don't have piece one. of love fruit. One. <laughs> I'm very disappointed. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, you were talking about what to do with kelp off beaches. What about all the, the carp and other marine life and fish that's washing up on beaches dead and causing a big stink down at Victor um, and, and other places? We're going to look at what you can do with that, if anything. Um, how do we get rid of that big stink? Not fun to live with. And a real dilemma for a lot of Chinese students. International students are trying to get back to Australia quickly after a sudden online ban on uh, or a ban on online study in China. So 
is that going to put our universities under pressure and international students um, using our universities, particularly here in Adelaide and Flinders and UniSA? It's certainly a big revenue stream for a lot yeah. of universities. So uh, keep listening to your ABC local radio. Sonia Feldoff will have more for you this afternoon. That's it from me, though, as we approach one o'clock. Stay connected with your ABC. Find news online at abc.net.au. Select your postcode to see local stories, news and weather. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.